Day two is truly depressing. It is often said that no one should enter into legal proceedings unless they have absolutely no other option, and this is so, so true. There is no sense of satisfaction of having our day in court, or seeing the defendant banked to rights. It's just incredibly stressful and utterly demeaning for all concerned. If I were not absolutely sure of B's complete innocence, I think I would tell her now, let's just drop it, let it go, it's not worth it. B's VRI is played and it's not great. To be honest, Davy's interviewing skills leave a lot to be desired. Caroline purses her lips in disapproval throughout. He hasn't completed key training for serious and complex cases, and his questioning is neither thorough nor accurate. If police forces are serious about increasing the number of rape convictions, they've got to start out by making sure people have the right skills, because otherwise they're whistling in the wind. As well as the poor quality of David's questions, the interview suffers from the fact that B can hardly remember anything. But she does recall Mr. Y grabbing my head and pushing me down, that she was struggling to breathe. She says she was frozen, that she felt that there was no point fighting and that she didn't know what to do. I hope the jury will be able to pick out these crucial bits of information from all the rest. The interview ends and there's one vital fact that has been omitted. David categorically assured me that the fact of B's virginity had been covered. It has not been covered. It's not mentioned, not even hinted at. This fills me with rage. Not just because of David's lie itself, but because of the pointlessness of it. If you can't tell me something, just say that. Don't lie. There's enough lying going on in this case from Mr. Y, who doesn't need to be coming from the police as well. B's pre-recorded cross-examination is next. The defence barrister begins by trying to make out that B was drunk and therefore lost all inhibitions and decided it would be a fab idea to have sex for the very first time with a complete stranger on a grubby street corner. Of course, this is not only unfair and untrue, but also goes against all of the CPS guidance on rape. It clearly says in the document, what is consent, that being drunk makes the complainant vulnerable. It does not mean they were asking for it. Who will tell the jury this? because sure as hell the defence barrister won't. And why on earth is she allowed to continually press B about the alcohol, to go on and on insinuating that this means B was lying, that she wanted it really, that she was well up for it? Why is no one allowed to challenge her while she is doing this, when the CPS says being drunk is not consent? I don't understand. I don't understand at all. Did the alcohol make you feel more confident? asks the defence. No. Did the alcohol make you do anything you wouldn't normally do? No. Were you taking any drugs with Sophia? No. Did the alcohol make you feel less sexually inhibited? I don't understand. The barrister explains. B's answer, once she has done so. No. This isn't too bad, but things soon begin to go rapidly downhill. To almost every question the reply is, I can't remember. Did you fall over as you walked away? I don't remember. Did you drop your phone? I don't remember. Did Mr. Y pick up your phone? I don't remember. Did your phone being damaged leave you upset? I don't remember. Did Mr. Y tell you his cousin owns a repair shop? Did Mr. Y tell you he could ask his cousin to repair your phone? Did you ask for his phone number? Did you want to get your phone repaired? Did you give Mr. Y your phone? Did you save his number yourself? To all of these, I don't remember. But the thing that stands out for me is that none of this is in Mr. Wise's prepared statement, 
So all of it has been concocted and made up subsequently once he's been given the information. Who is going to point this out to the jury to make sure they fully understand? When, where and how is the adverse inference going to be made? The cross-examination continues. Did you choose the name Baby? Finally, a different response. I don't think I would. Is Baby a friendly term you and your friends use when you speak to each other? No. Did Mr. Y use your phone? Did you call Mr. Y from your phone so he would have your number? Did you and Mr. Y have a friendly conversation? Did he ask you about getting you a cab? Did you tell him your name? Did you tell him you were 18? I don't remember, or I don't know, to each one. But we are really sure B did not tell Mr. Y her name. When he sent his girlfriend, Miss X, to find B, she asked for Beatrice Canning. B never, ever uses her full name. And young people don't use their surnames. I'm a teacher, I know this. Mr. Y heard B's name from the police, from the magistrate's court when he was charged, from wherever, I don't know. He didn't hear it from her. Again, there is nobody to tell the jury this. It makes me want to scream with frustration. The questions continued. Did you tell him you were older than you really were? This is clearly something Mr. Y has latched onto, as if believing B was 18 and therefore an adult would make his actions acceptable. Of course it's irrelevant, especially as the age of consent is 16. Maybe he doesn't know that. A better response from B. I don't remember, but I don't know why I would. Did you tell him your birthday was in September? I don't remember. Is your birthday in September? Yes. Again, I want to scream. He might have said something like, I'll get your phone fixed as a birthday present. When's your birthday? And B might have told him. But even more importantly, this information is not in his prepared statement, so he could have learnt it at any time from any of the many documents he has access to. B's date of birth will be on the police report, which we know he has been given. Who will tell the jury that he would be told this information, that knowing it does not prove that B gave it to him? Who? Who will instruct the jury that they can make an adverse inference from the fact that he is using this in his defence, but didn't put it forward when first questioned? The unbelievable answer is that no one tells the jury this. Even so, the idea that knowing the month of someone's birthday constitutes reasonable grounds to believe they are consenting to sex is utterly ridiculous. How many women have been tagged by some man who keeps asking questions and we answer them because we don't want to be rude and antagonise him in case he gets mad and does something to us? I certainly have. So have all the many, many women I spoke to in the run-up to this court case. Friends, colleagues, acquaintances, friends of friends, on and on. Every woman has suffered from the unwelcome attention of men. Did Mr Y say he lived in... The barrister names the part of London where we live. I don't remember. Did you say if his home is nearby, you could walk there together? I don't remember. Did you walk holding hands? Did you hug him in the street? I don't remember. Were you kissing in the street? I think so. Were you the one who led him to the grassy area? I don't remember. Do you know the area well? Yes. How often do you walk past? Most days. Did you choose that location? I don't know. I want to scream, to yell at the top of my lungs, for Christ's sake, be. Of course you didn't choose that location. You were on your way home. That's it. Did you go to the location willingly? I don't know. Did Mr. Y drag or pull you there? I don't remember. I'm in despair now. This is agony. Later, after the cross-examination had taken place, B told us that she did remember Mr. Y pulling her onto the grassy area and up against the nursery school wall. 
but the memories have come back in fits and starts over the months, piecemeal, little disconnected nuggets popping up and then disappearing. It's unbearable. And even if she were allowed to say what she now remembers, the defence would throw it back in her face, saying she's made it up, fabricated a story to get herself out of trouble. Truly, a victim cannot win in this situation. Was there quite a bit of kissing? I don't remember. I was kind of not enjoying it, but I didn't know what was happening. When PCA came to the pub, you said the kissing was okay. I don't remember. Was the kissing okay? I don't remember. Did you initiate sexual touching? I don't remember. Did you pull down his trousers, choose to touch his penis? Were there members of the public walking past? I don't remember. The urge to scream or to cover my ears or to walk out and never come back is barely containable. You can't remember, I want to say to her, but you know you did not want to have sex with this man. The barrister calls into question every one of B's actions. Why did she call her friends, not her parents? Did the person who found her, Nikki, put ideas into her head about what had happened? Is she lying about being raped? And then, the final onslaught. Drugs. The barrister begins by asking B about quetiapine. This is an antipsychotic that must be prescribed by a psychiatrist, not a GP, and which B first began to take as she was moving from inpatients to outpatients at the eating disorder unit. Every time the defence says the name of the pills, she makes it sound less like quetiapine and more like ketamine. This goes on and on, to the point that when the judge calls a break, I'm so infuriated I have to speak about it to Megan, the police officer in charge of the case. I demand that she asks the judge to clarify this matter to the jury, to make sure that they understand the nature of this medication and that it has nothing to do with the rape. But before I can do that, the real bombshell hits. The prosecution and police had told us that the expert witness's report into memory loss was inadmissible, though they had not said why. We assumed that meant the whole thing was out of the picture, irrelevant, not included, forgotten about. Now we find this is the opposite of the truth. The report will not be used by the prosecution to support B. It will be used by the defence to annihilate her. It transpires that B has disclosed to the expert witness that she regularly smokes cannabis and that she has taken MDMA and acid. I am stunned to hear about the last two as I didn't know about either of them, but at the same time I'm not surprised, as most young people experiment with recreational drugs. For the defence, though, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Added to her continued mispronunciation of quetiapine, which now takes on an even more sinister note, the barrister uses it to paint a picture of B as a drug fueled addict whose word cannot be trusted on anything. Later, B is hysterical about this. She insists that the expert witness continually assured her that everything she told him was confidential, that nothing would go beyond that room, but that she had to tell him everything so that he had the full picture. It's clear what has happened. B has been betrayed by someone who was supposed to help her and who has been paid a fee, I've no idea how much, from the public purse to do so. After the trial is over, I put in a complaint to the General Medical Council about this expert's conduct. Of course, the complaint was dismissed. No case to answer. What did I expect? No one will take responsibility for anything. Oh no, he did everything right. No, he did not do everything right. He did not tell my daughter exactly what was going to happen to everything that she told him. I'm furious and there's absolutely nothing I can do.
B also tells me that she has taken both MDMA and acid only once, the summer before, that she hadn't enjoyed the experience and had decided that it wasn't worth spending her money on. Unsurprisingly, this information does not appear anywhere in the court case. By the time we break for lunch, I'm so stressed and strung out I can hardly walk. Phil wants to go to Pret, but I made sandwiches for both of us, and Caroline has also brought her own lunch. There's no way I can face the trek down to the shops and cafes, but I understand Phil's need for fresh air and a break from the torpid, tense atmosphere inside the court building. Caroline and I find a corner table in the sparse and unattractive canteen. It's that awful post-exam feeling. You know you shouldn't conduct a post-mortem on what you wrote, but you somehow can't stop yourself. Going over the cross-examination, picking at the scab of B's incomplete answers and memory lapses, is impossible to avoid. All the confidence of yesterday has evaporated like the steam from the indifferent coffee I buy to go with my miserable lunch. Try not to dissect everything, advises Caroline. This is how court cases go. They ebb and flow. One minute all the cards seem to be with the defence, the next with the prosecution. It's always like this. She's said as much before, and she's trying to help, to reassure, I know. But nothing can stop me obsessing about what the jury might be thinking, believing, deciding. Thank God B doesn't actually have to be here. The thought of her having to stand in that witness box in front of judge and jury is unbearable. She would quite simply collapse. There's no way she would have been able to do it. It's a small mercy, but it's the only one we have right now. So I grab onto it like a drowning person grabs a survival ring.